Between 2019 and 2020, the total number of veterans experiencing homelessness remained relatively unchanged despite considerable reductions in previous years, meaning roughly 37,000 veterans across the country still lack permanent housing. Additionally, at least 1.4 million are considered at risk of homelessness, and we do not have a full picture yet of how this number might have been impacted as a result of the pandemic. Veteran homelessness is further complicated because as we all know, a shortage of affordable rental housing remains a major issue across the country. The harsh truth is we will likely not build our way out of the affordable housing crisis, at least no time soon. We simply cannot build enough one bedroom apartments to house every single veteran in need right now. And that's why you guys are here, because you realize this and you realize that we need to be talking about and thinking about those other options, options that might work in our communities right now and options that we might consider, but we're overall just less familiar with. My name is Jasmine and I'm the Housing Program Associate at the National Coalition for Homeless Veterans. Welcome to season two of the Road Home Podcast, where every week we will discuss creative housing solutions for veterans. Before we get into this week's episode, a very special thank you. We want to take this time to acknowledge and thank the Home Depot Foundation for sponsoring this podcast and for continuing to fund veterans housing throughout the country. For roughly a decade, the Home Depot Foundation has remained committed to supporting the mission and work of NCHV. Their continued partnership means more housing availability for veterans and hopefully one day an end to veteran homelessness. The Home Depot Foundation works to improve the homes and lives of U.S. veterans, train skilled tradespeople to fill the labor gap, and support communities impacted by natural disasters. The Foundation's Veteran Housing Grants Program awards grants to nonprofit organizations for the new construction or rehabilitation of permanent supportive housing for veterans. Since 2011, the foundation has invested more than $375 million in veteran causes and improved more than 50,000 veteran homes and facilities. The foundation has pledged to invest half a billion dollars in veteran causes by 2025 and 50 million in training the next generation of skilled tradespeople through the Path to Pro program. We'll be highlighting some of their work as we talk about various affordable housing developments throughout this series. If you're developing projects that support veterans exiting homelessness or would like to learn more about how the Home Depot Foundation is making a difference and continues to serve those who serve, visit homedepotfoundation.org. All right, you guys, the theme for this episode is sweat equity, which you probably feel like you've heard about before, but you're very unfamiliar with how it works or what exactly it is. If you're wondering how we chose this topic and why we're covering it this week, here's a couple of points that may help with answering that question. First off, something we all know at this point, affordable housing is super expensive to develop and build, and we have a major shortage. Something that's also true is affordable home ownership opportunities are even harder to come by. Sweat equity can potentially help overcome some of these very issues. Sweat equity can save affordable housing developers and overseeing organizations money and therefore pass extreme cost savings down to potential occupants. Sweat equity also increases the potential occupants buying power by creating a trade which returns more value than a direct dollar for labor exchange by instead using a form of community effort for community benefit. Sort of like banking sweat equity so that everybody wins. Sweat equity can also show an individual's willingness to partner and contribute to their home and the success of the overall program for other homeowners or occupants in similar positions. Finally, sweat equity also provides an opportunity for potential occupants to get hands-on and really get to know the home which they're gonna be living in which offers immeasurable benefits and helps them during the long haul of occupancy. Seems like a no-brainer, right? There could be so much potential in this very intervention. That's exactly the types of points we're going to cover in this episode. The interviews this week are great because they help break down some misconceptions I think most people have, which is that sweat equity exploits the homeowner or the potential occupant. What it actually seems like is sweat equity has great benefits and definitely the benefits outweigh the downsides. 
In this week's episode, we'll cover a couple of the questions we all have as far as how exactly sweat equity works, what it is, what sweat equity is not, how it can benefit veterans, who's even doing sweat equity, and what does sweat equity actually consist of. More specifically, this week we're talking to a few different people. So in the first half of this episode, our first interview, we're going to talk to Jeff B. He's the Chief Development Officer at Habitat for Humanity Metro Maryland. And he's going to cover sort of the ins and outs of how sweat equity works in their programs. He's also going to cover how veterans might benefit from an extension of their overall programs and services when sweat equity is not a great fit for them. And then in the second half of this episode, we're going to talk to Amanda Mowry from Habitat Black Hills. And she's joined by a very special guest, our veteran with lived expertise on this very topic, Noel Brown. He's going to share his family's experience and story participating in Habitat for Humanity's Sweat Equity Program. We have loads of information for you all today, and I want to thank our guests again for sharing so much with us. This episode will finally wrap with sort of a recap of what we talked about, what sweat equity looks like, new ways we might be thinking about sweat equity, in addition to covering a few takeaways for other organizations and communities to consider before moving forward. So let's dive in. Sure. Uh, my name is Jeffrey D, and I'm the Chief Development Officer for Habitat for Humanity uh, Metro Maryland. We are uh, in Montgomery in Prince George's County, Maryland, um, and we've been here nearly 40 years. Uh, we're coming up on our 40th anniversary next October. Uh, congratulations. So um, at this point, people are lightly or loosely familiar with what Habitat for Humanity does, um, but they're learning that every affiliate is a little bit different. Um, so if you will, will you give us a little bit of background on the location you guys work in um, and then some of the programs you have, and then we'll touch on how you guys, um, you know, offer your programs up to veterans. Sure, great question. So we're, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're in uh, Montgomery and Prince George's County, uh, Maryland. We're part of the DC metropolitan area. And as you can imagine, uh, or you may know that the, um, the, uh, there's a high cost of uh, living in the DC metropolitan area. And that also translates into um, housing costs, high housing costs, high land costs. So it's very expensive to live here. Um, and if uh, you are a lower income, um, it's extremely difficult uh, to, uh, to find uh, affordable, uh, decent, safe housing uh, that provides you and your family um, a safe place to grow, uh, to live, to grow up, uh, and to thrive. And um, we, uh, so we have several different programs, as you mentioned. A lot of people know about Habitat. So we build new construction or we rehab vacant distressed properties. Uh, and we are actually in the process of building our 100th house right now. Um, interestingly enough, our 98th house, or 90, 97th house was sold to a veteran. Um, and a couple of about two years ago, and now we're working on our uh, 100th house. Um, we have a family that will be buying it, I think, at the end of uh, September, and we're really excited about, about that. Um, but we also have uh, some other programs uh, that we do, uh, and some other Habitat affiliates do our repair and weatherization programs. So Habitat, about 10, 15 years ago, started asking well, what about the people who own their own homes but don't necessarily have the financial wherewithal to um, to keep it up? And so what we have uh, this program is to um, provide repair and weatherization services for lower income families uh, to give them um, a chance to enjoy a, an energy efficient, affordable, accessible home uh, throughout the time that they are actually living in the home. And um, one of the big things we've been doing recently in the last several years certainly is focusing on in increasing accessibility for homes, uh, for uh, older people, certainly not limited to older people, um, you know, putting in stair, stair lifts, uh, ramps to get into the house, uh, making bathrooms more handicap accessible, widening doorways when necessary, um, doing whatever we can so that as people age, uh, they can still have a good quality of life and enjoy um, where they're living. And 
that also ties in with our veterans program. So we actually have, um, as I mentioned earlier, we, you know, we have uh, home ownership opportunities for veterans. Uh, anybody can apply, certainly. Um, veterans can apply. And I mentioned one of our homes recently we sold to a, to a veteran. But we also have um, a part through our partnership with uh, the Home Depot Foundation, we get funding to do repair and weatherization projects specifically on veteran owner occupied homes. And so um, it's really kind of cool because we get a chance to meet with um, people who, you know, serve the country. And uh, one guy I'm thinking in particular, you know, he uh, was in the Air Force uh, in the 60s, was over in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, he owns his own home. Uh, and, you know, he is, uh, he is someone who wants to uh, be as independent for as long as possible, but he just, you know, needed some help with uh, roof repairs, uh, which had also translated to some uh, ceiling work that needed to be done, an HVAC unit that needed to be replaced, um, and we're so thrilled that we were able to help him um, and make it possible for him and other veterans um, to know how much we appreciate all that they do uh, and have done for us. Great. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have you guys on. and I'm, I'm excited to share this information with our audience. And I'm particularly excited for this week because we have two Habitat for Humanity affiliates participating with completely different housing markets. So I think it is cool to talk a little bit about how your programs can work for people um, in various locations, but also people in various housing situations. You guys, you have a sweat equity program. Obviously, that's the theme for this week. So I want to get into that program specifically a little bit more in depth, um, including how your volunteer hours translate to cost savings um, and how this benefits low-income homeowners or those transitioning into homeownership. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, at the core of um, Habitat is this... Uh, concept of what we call the fund for humanity fund uh for humanity and what the fund for humanity is uh essentially is people pooling their money and resources together and working together uh to build a house and then taking the mortgage payment and more volunteer labor and building the next house and it kind of you know uh slowly multiplies um uh, over the years. And so one part of uh, our model is, as you mentioned, sweat, sweat equity, which is really what the uh, future homeowner, and if, if you're talking about new construction or rehabs, um, contributes to the project, uh, to whether it's, you know, uh, volunteering, helping us to demo when we are uh, working on a rehab distress property or helping to you know, frame uh, out rooms and walls when we're working on new construction. Uh, it's their contribution to um, to the project, and it, it serves a couple of purposes. First, it gives that uh, uh, that for a future homeowner some skin in the game. You know, they have put their uh, sweat and tears, uh, so to speak, into um, the project. They have, you know, they're they're working. Um, most of them are working, uh, they have full-time jobs, and then they're coming out uh, on their one of their days off to build alongside other volunteers to make their uh, dream of home ownership uh, a reality. Uh, overall, when you look at our whole um, volunteer program, not only partner families, but our whole volunteer program, um, we have about, on an average year, we have about 4,000 volunteers who, uh, give their time to Habitat Community Metro Maryland. And that translates to about eight hundred dollars or $900,000 worth of money saved that if we had to pay someone to do all that work, we would have to spend another you know, eight to $900,000. So when the homeowner, a future homeowner comes out and they're volunteering alongside of us, you know, they're learning um, how to take care of the house because they're helping to build it. The other thing they're doing is they're helping to keep our costs down uh, because they're helping, they're doing work that we would otherwise have to pay trades to do or somebody else to do. Um, and they're also gaining a sense of confidence. Uh, they're gaining a sense of empowerment. Um, one one uh, 
homeowner after she bought the house, she said, you know, I put in the hot water heater, I helped put in the hot water heater, I helped put in the cabinet. So if something goes wrong, I know what to do or at least who to call uh, because I helped put that in. And so it really gives a sense of empowerment uh, to people um, when they are, uh, you know, helping to build their house. Right, right. Well, yeah, I definitely want to flag for listeners that, um, you know, th- there are a couple misconceptions about Habitat. We'll get into them in just a second. But also, I want people to walk away with the um, understanding that they're not just home ownership programs, not just new construction programs. You guys have programs for existing homeowners, um, those that are already housed. So it works in, in multiple situations. So there's also this other common misconception that Habitat is just giving away houses. Um, you kind of already touched on it, but this is not exactly true, is it? No, no, Jasmine, that's that's a great point. Um, absolutely not. We don't give away houses at all. As a matter of fact, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, because of the sweat equity that a family has to put into the house, and we typically, a family can put anywhere from 200 to 500 hours of sweat equity. Um, that's them on the build sites. That's them volunteering uh, in the office. That's them also taking homeowner education classes. Uh, they are they are certainly not getting anything. Um, no, you know we make exceptions if there's someone who um, is not able to do the sweat equity for whatever reason. Um, you know they have some type of disability or some impediment which prevents them from doing it. We might not have them work on the build side as much. We might have them volunteer somewhere else in the affiliate. But either way, they're contributing uh, to the um, to the overall product, the overall building uh, of the house. The other way is that they will take on. You know, when we sell the house, and the key phrase there is sell the house to the family. You know, we are selling it to them. Uh, with a zero interest 30 year mortgage. So they begin the uh, 30 year process of paying paying off the house. So they certainly don't get anything uh, for free. They really have to work for it. They have to be committed uh, and to show their their interest. And that's the same thing, Jasmine, as you were just mentioning, not only you know, for repair and weatherization for any veterans out there that, you know, you 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 are you own your own home, you're living in your own home. Um, and you uh, want to, uh, or you need help, you know, Habitat for Humanity, as I mentioned earlier, has programs to help you through our repair and weatherization um, efforts. And um, you also would contribute a, a much smaller amount of sweat equity towards the project. A lot of times um, we use trades for the repair and weatherization projects, but it might be uh, you help volunteer uh, at the office, at one of our restores, um, you might make lunch for the for the volunteer. If we have any volunteers come out to the build site, you know. So there are definitely ways for people who don't own homes, um, who already own homes, to have access to Habitat's uh, help and support. Right. Okay. Well, that definitely clarifies it for me, and I hope it does for our listeners as well. The sweat equity is incorporated into multiple programs that you guys operate, not just building the new homes. And I hope people are hearing too, that there's a two-sided benefit. So some of the misconception, at least from what I've heard, um, is that sweat equity is kind of like, you know, using the the person um, for labor and like that maybe the organization would benefit more than the individual. And that's completely untrue. It's, it's a win-win for everybody involved because the individual's getting the hands-on experience. They also get you know, the past on um, cost savings, the organization benefits from those cost savings. But in addition to all that, they're, they're like this sense of empowerment and stuff like that, that you're talking about, the education that comes along with it is so important. And I hope listeners are flagging that. Yeah, that's hearing that. <laughs> um, so yeah, you touched on some of the overall functions and benefits of sweat equity from the program operational perspective. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more in depth about how veterans benefit from this um, and, you know, applicants in general. So it's part of the overall application criteria, right? And I'm wondering if you could clarify just a little bit more what the application in total entails. Uh, right. So, you know, it's it's a mortgage application. I mean, you, you are applying uh, for a mortgage just as if you would go to a bank. So, you know, there's the whole application you'd have to fill out. 
Um, and I, I don't want to make it daunting because it's, it, I mean, it involves work, but certainly um, it's, it's, you know, we work, we, we come alongside you, but there are three basic criteria we use uh, to identify people who are our uh, potential partners uh, for us. One is legitimate housing need, you know, so if someone uh, doesn't have a house, um, uh, if they, you know, were homeless, um, or uh, they are uh, living in, um, uh, you know, very poor conditions, uh, or they have, um, they are what's considered, uh, they're called a uh, uh, housing cost burden, which means they're paying uh, more than 30% uh, of their income towards their housing. Those are all legit, what we call legitimate um, housing needs. Um, so first you have to have a legitimate housing need. Secondly is you have to have an ability to pay. So um, as I mentioned earlier, and, and as we were, Jasmine was asking, you know, we do sell the house to the partner family. So they will be taking on a 30 year interest-free mortgage um, what makes it affordable for the family is that it's interest-free. We are the bank. We become the bank and issue the mortgage to the family, um, uh, whether um, and we issue the mortgage to the family. And then uh, willingness to partner. And willingness to partner means they are um, they are going to show up and help with the construction of the house. They're going to uh, participate, perhaps, in um, any outreach that we do. You know, sometimes we go to faith communities or talk to elected officials, and we invite partner families to come with us to talk about their experience. Um, and they also uh, part of that willingness to partner is they they participate in our homeowner education. Uh, classes are and that's all about making sure that when the family uh purchases the house that they are successful in that house uh, in our 40-year history we've had one default uh out of 99 homes and you know that's because we really work with the homeowner to make sure they're successful um, in the home right okay and then just to clarify for myself and also for listeners you guys are able to make accommodations for the sweat equity portion for those who might have physical limitations or not be able to actually work on site doing construction. You mentioned that um, you guys would allow people to work in the office or do some sort of maybe like clerical work. Are we missing anything else about what is included in sweat equity? Like what, what other things qualify for sweat equity? Well, you know, that's a good question, because one other way that uh, families can participate, so let's say you, you, you have a veteran, um, she served 10 years, and, uh, you know, she uh, is looking for an opportunity to purchase a home, uh, and she has, you know, two kids and a sister, and um, so her sister could contribute sweat equity hours by coming out and volunteering up to a certain amount. Um, and then also the children can contribute sweat equities by their performance in school. And again, that's it's limited because we do want the homeowner to do a lot of the sweat equity because it helps to empower them. It helps to give them the tools to be successful. But we also want, uh, when possible, the, uh, the the family to be able to contribute to the house because again, it's you know the children uh, gonna are gonna be uh, you know living there, and the sister will be you know. Uh, enjoying, you know, events there, et cetera, like that. So those are, but I think that's pretty much um, uh, the good explanation for sweat equity. Uh, as you mentioned, we do make accommodations, you know, for people with any type of limitation. Uh, I, you know, we've done that in the past um, and we work with people as much as we can um, to, uh, to meet them where they are. Right. Okay. And you shared to the, the one for foreclosure in 40 years, you shared um, some about the homeowner education. That's also part of the sweat equity program. Um, one thing I want to clarify are most of the people who come through um, your home ownership program, are they actually doing mortgages through Habitat or what does the lifetime of the mortgage look like? And then one thing I just had as a question for myself, I know some uh, metro areas, are, they're flexible with allowing voucher holders to use those for mortgage payments. Has Habitat ever done anything like that? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question. So um, we, uh, so a couple of things. One is we're the, we do become the bank, so we issue the mortgage. So we're the note holder. We don't sell it to anybody. Um, and because we look at it, at it as we are entering into a 30-year partnership with the family. Uh, you know, just during COVID, as an example, we had 10 families that had reduced income uh, due to COVID. And so we offered forbearances. Um, they had to continue paying the property tax portion of their mortgage, but we, uh, we took the, the principal, uh, part of the mortgage and we just tacked it on to the end. That's one way we're able to help our families. Um, so, uh, we, we issue the mortgage. It's a 30 year note that they pay off, you know, just like anybody else would, um, to, um, to us. You know, that's a great question about the uh, the vouchers. I don't know if, I know we've never done it, but that doesn't mean we couldn't do it because we do look at, uh, does a person have uh, steady, reliable income? Um, and it's not necessarily, uh, we don't look at where it's coming. You, you know, I mean, whether it's a job or some type of, you know, disability benefit or alimony, et cetera, like that. We just look at, do they have steady income that will be sufficient for them to be able to pay the mortgage and not be cost burdened by the, by the mortgage? Right. Okay. Well, I mean, I definitely, I think that that's something that could be creatively done, especially in areas like the DC metro area. It's not to say it could be done everywhere. Um, because we do have those protections in place for voucher holders, you know, the income discrimination laws. Um, so it's interesting, and I, I would like to see it, I guess, in the future. I know everything's a case-by-case -case basis, but that makes perfect sense. And so with you guys being able to um, be the mortgage issuer, you're able to be more flexi flexible with the homeowners. Um, and so if I'm understanding correctly, most of the people who go through this home ownership program do take the mortgage out through you guys. It's not people coming to you with other mortgages outside. Well, mortgage. Yeah, because I mean, they're not going to get better than zero interest mortgage. So right. it wouldn't, you know, uh, wouldn't make sense for them uh, to, I mean, unless, you know, there are sometimes, and you'll see some affiliates, you know, the USDA uh, has a, a rural uh USDA Rural 502 program um, where people can apply and they get a very low interest loan uh, through um, USDA. And so there are some Habitat affiliates. I know Loudoun County, Virginia does that. Um, and uh, there may be some, and, and I don't know about it, but Jasmine, you may, there may be some veterans benefits, you know, maybe the, I don't know if the Veteran Administration does something like that. So. The typical way is for people to come to us, we issue the mortgage, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, if you get a very low interest loan through like USDA, uh, USDA program, or if you got it through the VA, if they had that as an option, that we couldn't partner with you on that. Right. I think the, the major benefit is that the VA home loan program doesn't require like a down payment, so no substantial money for it at move-in okay. um, and so just comparatively the habitat one does require a down payment of some sort right it's a one it's a one percent down payment uh and then the closing costs are rolled into the uh mortgage and so it's put over 360 payments you know instead of paying it all at the at the, at the time of closing gotcha okay I think, yeah, it would be a case-by-case -case thing for somebody to look at, look at and see if the zero interest versus the upfront payment would be more of a barrier, you know? Right. Um, okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so, um, and I want to give some tips for other communities and give a couple of communities, you know, things they can leave with that maybe are not as familiar with Habitat, have never worked with Habitat before, or don't have one in their immediate areas. So... One thing that comes to mind, I know a lot more veterans would probably be interested in this program than actually, you know, selected to complete the program and, you know, the volume of people you could actually serve. Um, so you had mentioned, you know, Habitat's partnerships. How else can Habitat be um, sort of a connection place or a cornerstone of partnerships for the community for those providers who can't get their veterans right into your programs? The one thing that continually uh, amazes me, impresses me, I don't know if that's the right word, is, you know, veterans, um, they tend to, in, in my experience, uh, they tend to uh, say, well, you know, other people need it more than I do. 
and they tend to uh, want the uh, focus on other people. And um, so while there are, I'm, you know, there are certainly more veterans than we have available, I would just say, at least for Metro Maryland, Montgomery, Prince George's County, you know, um, we're always trying to find veterans, qualified veterans. Uh, so I, I just don't want people to self-select themselves out and say, well, some, you know, there's not a, there's not enough. Um, you know, there are some other uh, organizations. We're part of um, the Montgomery Housing Alliance, and we're working with Rebuilding Together, Victory Housing, uh, and others to advance affordable housing options and opportunities in Montgomery County, um, particularly. And so, uh, you know, if, if we can't help you, there may be other people that we can put you in touch with um, that could help you. In Prince George's County, we partner with HIP, which is Housing Initiative Partnership, and help, and we work, you know, they might do the exterior work on a house, would do the interior work. So we certainly have lots of relationships with people. Um, and uh, we can, you know, work with, you know, if we can't help you, we may know somebody that can help you or help you navigate through some, you know, regulations and bureaucracy and, uh, and, and, and that much and that such, excuse me. So that's how we can sort of be the cornerstone of the project uh, in helping guide people. That's such a good point, too. I think, I hope listeners hear that and walk away with that. Don't let your veterans, you know, disqualify themselves from programs and don't be discouraged to try programs that are outside of your normal and your comfort zone. That's kind of the theme for most of the episodes this season, you know, with home ownership and, um, and sweat equity and, you know, shared housing and uh, tiny homes, prefab, you know, manufacture, all these kind of things that kind of fall outside of the norm. Um, don't be scared to try something that seems unattainable or un uncommon, you know, go, go for it and then reevaluate if necessary after, but at least try it. So it's such a Yeah. Good. You know, there, there, I mean, I can, there, there are plenty of stories I can tell you that people applied kind of on a whim, you know, like, Oh, I'm never going to get this and no, they got it. Um, and, uh, there are plenty of housing providers out there. Not that there's not a great need, but, you know, as I mentioned, rebuilding together, uh, there's also the Fuller Center for Housing, Habitat for Humanity. So there, there are plenty of opportunities out there. You know, one of the challenges is finding them and 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 turning that into a, a partnership. Um, so you know, it, it, just don't get discouraged. Um, and uh, you know, especially if someone's out there. You know, what I would say is don't get discouraged. If you have a local Habitat affiliate and you go to their website and you don't see anything for veterans, that doesn't mean you shouldn't call them because maybe they just haven't gotten it on to their website. It may be a Habitat affiliate, Jasmine, that's just looking to start it and they just like they haven't gotten everything onto their website yet. So it's there, but they're trying to find a veteran. I know when we started working with veterans uh, four or five years ago, more uh, intentionally, we had a really hard time finding veterans. Um, and it took us several years to kind of build the pipeline up so people know, oh, okay, veteran here, go talk to Habitat for Humanity. So just don't make assumptions. Um, and sometimes you have to just dig a little bit. So thank you again to Jeff for sharing that information with us. This next interview will get a little more personal on how sweat equity works and feels for an individual or family in the program. We will also see if there's any major differences between these two different habitat locations and how they run their sweat equity programs. So let's see what Amanda and Noel have to say. Hello, my name is Noel Brown. I am a 40% service-connected disabled veteran. Um, I have I've been living, living in a habitat house for five years and seven months, and I really enjoyed it. We started out as, um, when we moved back to Rapid City for the fourth time, we, we started out to, at the homeless shelter, the veterans homeless shelter. And eventually we got, um, you know, my mom helped us to get a motel room. So we lived in there for a while. Then we got on the Section 8 housing. And then we took some, some financial freedom courses from the Love Inc., Love, Love in the Name of Christ, which helped me with my personal finances. Then after that, we, I got, when I got my service to connect, connected disability, I used that, 
that money I got to pay off on my student loan defaulted in the child support the default that was child wasn't mine but the state said it was so I had to pay that and I paid off all my debts and my wife's debts on our credit reports and then after two months they said wait two months and then two months later we applied for a habitat house by then our credit reports are cleaned up then we went through the entire um the, the whole entire program both of us are um, like office people and I have done construction work in the past so um, probably the hardest part of course was the sweat equity you know and one time we had to um, work at a house and um, the, the house the, you know the foundation was there and we had to paint the, the foundation with tar so got all over our shoes and our clothes and our skin and you know, it was you know it's time you won't forget they throw away all the clothes but it was interesting yeah but we did all our how we got the sweat equity always done is my wife and I we would volunteer together so um, you know keep each other going and my mom would babysit for our son, for our son so we we, we together we went to jail all the hours all together, well, you know, like as, as a couple, you know, so emotional support, and so we got it done, yeah. And it took us two years from the time we first signed up to when we finally moved in. It took us a year to get all the stuff done, the sweat equity was the last of it. Then we waited for a year until the, the house was finally built and we moved in. We're happy to have you here today um, and definitely want to get into some more questions about how sweat equity worked for you and how able to become a homeowner. Um, I know we have Amanda as well joining us from the Habitat for Humanity organization in Black Hill. So I'll let her go ahead and do an introduction and we'll get into some more questions about sweat equity specifically. Hi, this is Amanda Mowry. I am the homeowner services associate for Black Hills area Habitat for Humanity. Um, our affiliate has been around since um, 1990, um, and we offer both a home ownership program as well as a home repair program for um, homeowners who are um, needing repairs um, and aren't able to afford it um, through regular um, financing. Great, okay. And so, Noel, were you a native of um, the Black Hills area? Were you new to the area when you joined their program? And then, Amanda, for you, will you, you just kind of introduce people to what the Black Hills area is like for those who've maybe never heard of it? Well, I'm from the Simon River Sioux Tribe, and that's like three hours drive east, northeast from here. And yeah, and it's, on, it's really rural and desolate and all, all that. And, um, and then people want to move to Rapid City to get off the reservation and have a better life. So I came here like three times, and then I, I used to be a bad alcoholic, and so I couldn't really um, adjust or, you know, get a stable job and things like that, and so I had to go back. But I became a Pentecostal Christian. and was going to this Pentecostal church three times a week, and it finally sobered me up, and I went there for nine, you know, nine, wait, like, my seven months straight, three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Thursday night. The pastor was a really powerful Pentecostal preacher. She's a black lady, and she sobered me up, you know, because I used to be like addicted to hundred proof vodka and whiskey. But she sobered, she helped me sober up, and the Church of God sobered me up, and so I've been sober for twelve and a half years now. And um, so after I sobered up, you know, seven months later, we moved back to Rapid City. I, I was a Pentecostal preacher. I'm, I'm going to become one. But um, so when we came back for the fourth time, I said, well, I want to start at the bottom. You know, I know Rapid City, so I'm going to check into the homeless shelter, the veterans homeless shelter. My wife, she stayed, my wife and son who stayed at the women and children's shelter. And um, he was 10 months old. And so I said, I want to start at the bottom. You know, because, of, you know, we're familiar with Rhapsody. So we started at the bottom and just helped learn about the resources that are available. And I had a clear head, you know, and I 
since, you know, now I can mention that I've studied since I got to Habitat House and before I studied the King James Bible. That's what keeps me a sane head. Um, I've read the King James Old Testament six times, and I've read the King James New Testament eight times. And I'm on the ninth time, the King James New Testament, in the book of Acts. He's reading two two chapters a day, you know, and that's what kept me, you know, stable and, you know, uh, helped me, you know, get to where we're at now, you know, with Habitat and um, with college, you know. Because when I, when I first, when we moved back, I found out, you know, God was showing me through signs and wonders and dreams that, um, you know, I'm eligible for service-connected disability for post-traumatic stress disorder, which I didn't know I had all those years. You know, that probably, you know, contributing factor to my former alcoholism. So I, I applied for, P, you know, PTSD, and I took me years to get on that. Then I got that. Then plus I got on a disability from my back, 10%. So PTSD is 30% and 10% from my back. And so I got on those. And, um, I used my money that I get from that. I used all of it. I take my, I, I pay 10% tithes and 5% for offering. And then all the rest of it, I put it into the Habitat House. So like for August 1st, I'll pay for September. Then September 1st, I'll pay for October, you know. I use it all for for housing. And um, it's the wisest, wisest thing I can think of. And um, so then when I got on v VA disability, I got on VA voc rehab, and God showed me ahead of time too. It's a long story for all those. I can send send you some statements. But He showed me that I'm eligible for you know VA voc rehab. So I went through that program and it took me. I was I had a bachelor's degree before I moved here in business administration. But when I was trying to find a job, you know, my, my degree is a tribal college in Sinti Glasgow University. So it didn't really, to me, it didn't have any pull or anything. So I went back to college for a bachelor's degree in accounting and um, with Black Hill State University under VA Bokria. And, you know, it took me four and a half years, you know, all my credits transferred, but I had to take some more classes. And, you know, it was very rigorous and very, you know, extremely... <clears throat> You know, hard on me, but I, I really enjoyed everything I did all the way through. So it took me four years and three months, and I graduated with a bachelor's degree in accounting through the VA Voc Rehab program. Since then, I was able to get a job. You know, I started working for the Internal Revenue Service for two months as a revenue agent, but I found out I, you know, I'm not cut out for that kind of that line of work. So I worked for the, um, you know, various jobs. And you know Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and delivering pizza and um, but I found another job with the Census Bureau. I worked there for eight months. I was driving to the reservations and back, and then now I'm working for the the Small Business Administration. You know, I was processing these economic injury disaster loans, and they switched me over to the those, those targeted advance grants of ten thousand to businesses. And supplemental targeted events of 5,000 more to businesses. Then they put us into um, 60 hours a week. So now I work 60 hours a week, you know, giving out grants to businesses all over the country. So we work, you know, 10 hours a day, you know, six days a week. You know, and I enjoy it. You know, when before I used to be homeless and I used to live in, you know, like. Like that story, you know, we lived on a car, we lived in a tent, we lived in a shed, we lived, you know, people's relatives' houses and, you know, being mistreated and, you know, people are known to, you know, treat the people mean because they're staying in their house under their roof. And so we went through all of that stuff, you know. This habitat you know, experience, it's just amazing that, you know, we've never been a homeowner before. And because we just kept trying to, like when I studied the Bible, I, I could see things in the future, what we need to do here, what we need to do there to you know, upgrade our standard of living. And some of them is so subtle and you can't even see it. It's like when a, like an iceberg, when it moves, humans can't see it move, you know. But I can see that, you know, well, other times it's, you know, a huge leap 
like when we first moved into our habitat house, you know, it was like, you know, uh, you know, it was like, you know, we're Native Americans, so it was like moving into a white person's room. And we were, it's so foreign, you know, it's such a big house, and we're used to, you know, substandard living, you know, so it took us a long time to get used to um, our own house, you know. With sweat equity, you know, we even had this building that I'm sitting in, we had to work with, you know, like scrubbing toilets and stuff like that, you know, was doing that. But I used to be a motel cleaner and my wife was too, you know, so it wasn't, you know, too far-fetched, you know. So we, we know he was doing it for the house. So he's cleaning those toilets and the tubs and everything, you know. I mean, you enjoyed it, yeah. It wasn't hard. It was, you know, it was, you don't, when you're doing the sweat equity, you don't see the house. You don't see anything, you know. All you know is here we are scrubbing toilets or here we are, you know, doing all this construction work and you can't see the the benefits, but we just keep kept plugging away until we got to all the hundred hours in. Well, it definitely sounds like the home is, you know, it started a whole chain chain reaction of um, kind of this whole new life you've created. So that is definitely something to be proud of. And it, I, I guess it helps me and it would help our listeners too, to kind of, you know, get this picture of when you're in the moment and you're doing sweat equity work or you're sitting down with, you know, somebody at Habitat discussing what your options are, you might not see the finish line, but, you know, once you move in and hearing about your life now just um, makes all those little steps and little things seem so worth it. And let's talk a little bit um, about the program in formal terms, and then we'll go back to kind of like follow-up questions that probably our listeners would have about how it works in practice. We all have this general understanding at this point that sweat equity goes into, um, you know, the program as a whole to become a, a homeowner. But I want to talk a little bit more in depth about how you guys specifically use this as a, um, you know, cornerstone or portion of your filtering applicants. Um, So how is this idea first presented? Like Noel would have come into the office and said, you know, I'm interested in participating in your program, Um, but how is it actually presented to the person that is seeking homeownership opportunity? Yeah, so it is um, part of the program requirements. Um, So we definitely want people to know that upfront before they consider if the program is right for them um, because it does require Um, participation with the entire household Um, and so um, we that's that's kind of what we use to I mean it fulfills a lot of purposes um, building community um, amongst our homeowners as well as our regular volunteers um, skill building in terms of um, you know Noel mentioned the construction hours which are 100 out of the total 250 hours that are required um, so there's an opportunity for skill building there. Um, we also have classes as part of the requirement. That's a total of 50 hours and includes um, financial literacy classes as well as um, home buyer education classes. Um, so for our program, um, we don't require a down payment um, other than $500 um, within the first five months of the program. And so the sweat equity is kind of viewed Um, as replacing the more traditional um, down payment for a home, Um, but it it does not translate um, into any type of dollars. So we do uh, make sure that we let our homeowners or our partner families rather know that um, if they're unable to complete the program for some reason um, or decide that it's not for them partway through that, you know, there's not any compensation for that. Great. Okay. That makes sense. And I know Noel was explaining a little bit of the work that was required of them. So there's some on-site work. There's some of the financial literacy courses. Um, And I'm guessing too, he was saying you don't necessarily work on your home only. So it's kind of like um, everybody contributes to the program as a whole and everybody benefits from the program as a whole. So we um, typically have a few projects going on. Sometimes we have um, remodeled homes that we're working on or new construction. So yeah, absolutely. You're typically 
um, working on other families' homes while you're in the program. Um, we definitely do everything we can to try to help partner families, um, you know, be able to work on their own house because that's very satisfying. Um, but there's just a lot of, you know, components with timing as far as whether or not that's possible. Right. And so um, Noel was also explaining that it took them some time from them first indicating their interest in the program to actually moving in or becoming homeowners. So I'm wondering if there are any other formal requirements somebody has to come to you guys with or in a certain position already to participate in your programs? Yes, um, we do have um, some income guidelines. So um, you have to uh, have a gross income of less than 70% of the area median income for the county that you reside in. Um, and there's also a minimum income requirement um, because the the homes, you know, it's a it's a the mortgage, it's a typically a low interest or zero interest loan, um, but it does have to be repaid. Um, and so there is a lower threshold for income. Um, then we also look at uh, debt to income. So um, just ensuring that you're able to meet the uh, minimum principal payment that'll be associated with the home. Noel, you had said your family, um, you know, was living in a shelter prior to moving into looking at the Habitat program. Did you guys realize that these were part of the requirements? Were you already working on some of these things? Or once finding out about the Habitat program, um, did you have to, you know, like, what was your first impression of the program? Did you have to um, change focus on like what you were doing as far as managing your finances and preparing for their program? Yeah, um, when we first moved back to Rapid City, it was actually two homeless shelters. I was in a men's homeless shelter, the veterans portion, and my wife and son was at the women and children's homeless shelter. And then I would, you know, just to try to start out and get ahead and stuff, I'd go to the Rapid City Library and, you know, read newspapers and try to find out, you know, opportunities to help us, you know, get ahead. And, and then one time I saw that there was having a, information meeting for Habitat. So I sat in on it and then, you know, they explained the whole process. And I'm glad I did, you know, because I said, oh, okay, this is what we need to do. We need, we need to do this and this. And, you know, back then, my, that's when my, you know, I was still defaulted and still loan, and I still ordered on a child that's not even mine, you know, but on my credit report, it showed that, you know, I was defaulted and still loan, and I was default on child support, even though the child wasn't mine. I still haven't, um, um, the lady that, the, the woman that tried to say that child was mine, she finally fessed um, up to the state that it's not my child. So then they dropped the case, but then they said, well, somebody still has to pay this money, so you, you pay it, you know. <laughs> That's how I got stuck with the money, you know. So anyway, I ended up paying it because, um, you know, I take it off my credit report, you know, and it's actually a good thing to pay it off. You, you know, it's one of those things that, there's actually benefits to paying it off that it shows that you paid off the credit report. I mean, it's a it's a thing that stops a lot of people, you know, child support and student loan, um, that from, you know, because they're government and all, things that, you know, put a hindrances on people's credit reports. But anyway, so then I paid those off and, and oh, when I went to that Habitat informational meeting, I found out, oh, okay, we got to work on a credit, you know, and then... God was showing me, I walked by this one church, and all of a sudden there's this big, warm presence that would come over me. It felt like, you know, love. And it was a huge thing. I was looking at this window, and, and I said, I know I'm going to be in that window, but I don't know, I don't know that classroom, I don't know why, or that kitchen. And then I was reading the newspapers, and I showed, you know, um, Love Inc. was going to have some classes there. I said, oh, that's what it is. So then I signed up, and then it's, what, what, what classes do you have? These financials. And, we got financial freedom, and I said, you know, we got three classes. Which one do you want? I, said, I don't know. And she said, do you have debt? I said, yeah. I said, okay, well, financial freedom. So I signed up for it, and I was, you know, God showed me. Like twice I walked by that. Three times I walked by that place. Each night I felt that powerful presence around that church, you know, where they're going to have those classes. So he took all 12. I, took all, I think it was 10 or 12. But I went to every one of them, and that's even though I had a bachelor's degree in business, and I thought I was smart, you know, actually I wasn't. Because <laughs> every way, all the way through, I kept saying, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. 
So I took all all the every one of their classes, and I learned about budgeting, and I learned about you know paying off my debts. And to be give an example, when I first moved back here, my credit report was like 505, 500, 505, but now it's 788. You know, because of that that Dave Ramsey course. So I took that course, and then that was before I actually signed up, and then I cleaned up. That's so why I cleaned up my credit report, my wife's credit report. Then once it was cleaned up, then I told my wife, we were on Section 8 by then. You know, it's past the homeless shelters. We are past the motel. We got on Section 8. It was in a you know, that's government housing, as you already know. But, you know, we wanted, you know, more. And we wanted, you know, our own home, you know. Um, my sister in Nigel Butte used to have a habitat house. And so that was kind of a, you know, influence. I said, gee, she had a house. You all want to get a house too, you know. So um, then our um, we were on Section Eight. And we missed it. Um, we made our payments on time. We always do, but they upped the rent, and then I didn't know that. And then so it was like forty five dollars short. And she said, "Yeah, it's paid up." Got a letter saying, "Yeah, it's paid up forty five dollars." So can face eviction. I said, "Gee, what that mean? You know, we repaid everything. We did everything good." And I said, "Well, I think it's been two months since we paid everything off." There's another another information on meeting coming up. And by then it's been like two years. So we went to the second I took my wife to the second informational meeting and they explained everything and that's when we signed up, you know. So yeah, we did took some prep before we actually started because we had to clean up my credit reports, both of us. Right. Well, I mean, it makes sense. I guess from the veteran perspective, you're seeing these things like this checklist you kind of have to go through. You're mentally preparing yourself and you're working every day towards, you know, checking things off one by one. The financial courses, getting your credit right, um, making sure, you know, financially you're stable enough to move in, but also stable to, enough to remain in your home, which is so impressive how Habitat is able to prepare homeowners for the long haul of the home ownership. Um, you know, I, I do have one follow-up question, I guess, for this program specifically, Amanda, how do you think it gives people opportunity to become homeowners that would not typically have the opportunity? And, and do you think the sweat equity component or any of the other components that we've talked about today really plays into that? Yeah, um, so one of the um, requirements for the application is to um, include a denial for a conventional mortgage. Um, and so we are providing an opportunity for home ownership for um, folks who may have had poor credit in the past um, and have been able to clean it up in the last couple of years, um, but still would not be able to qualify for a conventional mortgage. Um, and I think the sweat equity uh, portion of it is very helpful um, in terms of that kind of being a substitute for, you know, 10 or 20% down on a home. Um, and so that aspect also um, makes homeownership a lot more tangible for um, folks who would not otherwise be able to achieve that. And you guys both have talked a little bit about some of the additional benefits that come from this requirement um, as far as like getting hands on, you know, showing your commitment to the program. Um, and then also, you know, I, I guess, what you're actually doing on site kind of goes into that as well. Um, is there any other added benefits you see to the program, the way you guys operate it? Well, um, friends and family can um, contribute up to 75 of those 250 hours. So it's a really great opportunity for um, your loved ones to contribute to your home. Um, so that's really cool. Um, Kids are able to um, earn hours by getting good grades, um, so they can feel like they're contributing towards the sweat equity requirement as well. Um, so those are just a couple of the little ways that I think it, you know, does, um, again, just foster that sense of community um, within our local community. I'm wondering if there are any other misconceptions that people might have about sweat equity, and if this is something maybe other communities should consider, um, you know, any misconceptions that should be clarified before jumping into similar, operating similar programs. Yeah, I think just ensuring that people understand that it's, it's not a 
hour for a dollar exchange straight across that it is a program requirement. Um, and yes, I think that um, it's been really good for our community. Um, we see a lot of success um, with home ownership um, for folks that go through our program. Um, it's, you know, we rely heavily on, um, you know, grants of all kinds, you know, individual donors, um, volunteers. So, um, you know, I think it's, Habitat has such a, is such a household name um, that we're, you know, it puts us in a good position to um, gather those resources. But I think that that would be, you know, the difficult part of mimicking this program is just having um, those people that are willing to, to give um, financially and of their time so generously to make it possible for um, qualified applicants to achieve home ownership. And then I guess one final question for you, Noel, is this, um, I'm wondering, is this a program that you think other veterans should consider in similar situations? Why or why not? And also, um, I guess, any closing thoughts you have for those veterans that might be hearing this and considering doing doing the program the same way you did? I think it would be an excellent program for the veterans. Me coming from, you know, the veterans homeless shelter and being homeless in other towns and, you know, the reservations, you know, living in substandard housing and, you know, in, you know, in cars and sheds. You know, we do dream of having, living in a home and calling it home, you know. A lot of veterans think of that as just like a, like a fantasy, you know, it's a dream that never come true, you know, but the truth is it does come true. I know because I used to have the same dreams. I'll never have a home, you know, or, you know, you see, I always say, you know, all the white people, you know, but they have homes. And then me as a you know native, like always when they talk about, before I started this program, they talk about mortgage, you know, down payment and all of that was just foreign to me. I don't even know what mortgage is or what, you know, down payment is, you know, all these points and things like that. I had no clue until I went through the program and I learned about all of that stuff. So the program will teach people that don't understand what mortgages are, what what they really are. And then when you, then when the veteran actually, well, when I've actually got a house, you know, it, it matures you and gets you more responsible. You know, got to cut the grass, shovel the snow, and you know, clean up your house. And, but you, you know, always want to make sure it's a, you know, your house is really well taken care of. And so it, it gets a sense of ownership and you feel mature and responsible. And, you know, I, I feel for other veterans that I see in Rap City that don't have a house and I wish I could help them, you know, but I can't, you know, like I'm only one person. Another thing I wanted to mention that's really cool about this program is that when we was doing the, the sweat equity hours, we met. I met a lot of volunteers from the Ellsworth Air Force Base, the soldiers there. And so I got to visit people from all over the country, you know, different races. Excuse me. So I thought that was really cool that, you know, if most local people in Rapid City, they stay on a, you know, Rapid City. But with this program, you're able to interact with, you know, soldiers on Ellsworth Air Force Base, Air Force people. And so that's really cool, you know, you get to meet these guys and find out what their lives are. Because I'm a veteran, I can tell them, you know, just, you know, you guys are doing the right thing by being in the military because it's going to benefit you and for the rest of your life, you know. And then, then of course, I could, I could probably, if, if I was thinking ahead of time, I could have said, you know, you should think about getting a habitat house down the road when you get out. But they probably will because they volunteer through it. But it's a good program to to network with or meet meet veterans or military people that are probably lonesome for their families, you know. So that was a lot to take in, I know. And I just want to thank Amanda and Noel again for sharing such great information with our audience. And um, before we head out for this week, I have to recap a couple of points for you guys and a couple of takeaways I want us all to be thinking about from this episode. So first things first, the potential is definitely there. Split equity can move lower income veterans or veterans experiencing homelessness into home ownership. And there are many benefits that come with the option of sweat equity that other financing options just can't match. For example, providing more value than a dollar for labor exchange could, 
preparing veterans for long-term occupancy, and also building the sense of community amongst program participants. Sweat equity can obviously be applied in many ways, but one of the things I really liked and found particularly interesting about the way Habitat's model operates is that there's no equation which transfers actual hours worked to money, or no equation that values one type of physical contribution over another. It gives those participating in the program great opportunities to be involved and also to extend that to their family and friends to also contribute without limitations. One of the things I would encourage all listeners to do after this episode is to become acquainted with your local Habitat affiliates. As you heard in these stories and these interviews, they make great partners and not just in the lane of sweat equity or home ownership for that matter, their programs in general. I think what this episode and these interviews have really done and shown me and hopefully all of you guys is that we can creatively incorporate or include sweat equity into our programs where appropriate and we can do it in a way that makes sense for us and our organizations and also for those that we serve. So don't feel like there are limits, you know. I could see this applied elsewhere and some of the other alternative housing options we're actually going to be discussing this season. For example, in the implementation of tiny home communities or even shared ownership. I don't know. I'm definitely thinking my wheels are turning and I hope you guys are as well. Definitely something we should be considering. And I'm just curious what other ways you all think we might be able to incorporate sweat equity to lower costs and ultimately pass those cost savings on to veterans. You all can learn more about the projects or topics we discuss in this episode by checking out our weekly one pager, which includes links to both Habitat for Humanity Metro Maryland and Habitat for Humanity Black Hills. We're also going to include a link to Noel's story and some information about his family's move-in day. Just want to thank you guys so much for joining us this week. If you're curious about this episode or want to learn more about the National Coalition for Homeless Veterans, visit nchv.org or search NCHV on social media. The road home may be a long and winding one. However, the journey ends once every veteran has a permanent, stable, and affordable place to call home. Thank you again and see you all next week.